Welcome to the Human Capital Innovations Podcast, your go-to source for personal, professional, and organizational growth and development. We hope you tune in often for all things people management, organizational development and change, organizational leadership, and social impact related. Maximize your personal and organizational potential with Human Capital Innovations Podcast. Welcome to the Human Capital Innovations Podcast. In this HCI podcast episode, HCI Research Associate Dr. Leandra Hernandez and her colleagues continue their weekly COVID-19 convo via Facebook Live to discuss all things COVID-19 related. Okay, so I don't know about y'all, but um, right around Easter, we live on a main, like a major high, basically the closest thing to a highway that Spokane has. Um, yeah. Like we live right on it. So I can like see sort of the traffic daily. Mm-hmm. And it kicked up so much right around Easter. And I'm, we're all gonna, I just think, well, I'm not gonna say what I, the hyperbolic thing I was gonna say. <laughs> I am very concerned about people just like outliving their lives right now. Like, huh. what are seeing oh there's pamela well if it makes you feel any better kari i think here it seems to be the opposite reaction i feel like people are just starting to kind of be inside like today i went for a jog and normally i have to dodge people and today i saw zero people on my jog the people must be good yeah (laughs) I don't know. I feel like people here just like don't care at all. Really? Not anymore. I mean, for a while it was doing great. And um, so far the hospitals in Spokane are, are doing great, like not nearly as bad as anyone thought. And then mm-hmm. it just seems like once they announced that, the governor said it, then everybody got too cavalier. Yeah. And I wanted, I don't know if you have anything, maybe you could speak to that a little bit, Leah. Like, there's such an interesting problem of like health communication, letting people know that what they're doing isn't pointless. Mm -hmm. But then the concern that like telling everybody that things are looking so much better has risks as well. Yeah, it, it's kind of a double-edged sword, right? From a, a fear or a hysteria perspective. Because on the one hand, Um, it's so important to actually disseminate the information to show that we have progress, treatments are working, social distancing is working, right? But then when that information is co-opted by individuals, either to justify them not following through with the mandates, or when it's used by um, more well-intentioned individuals to kind of just say, hey, things are a little bit better now, life can go back to normal. you know, that's when I really start to think about the role of fear appeals and whether or not they work, because um, a lot of persuasion literature and risk and crisis com literature talks about the pros and the perils of fear appeals, right? Like we don't like being scared into doing things, but then the question just comes down to really how do we frame that to tell people there is progress 
but not also to say we don't need it anymore, right? And I've been thinking about this a lot within the Texas context and Governor Abbott and a lot of the other politicians coming out and saying, we want to reopen the state. And as someone who has family members in small business context, I mean, I'm concerned for their health. I'm concerned for the health of their fellow employees. And then I'm also really concerned for all of the individuals in Houston who are especially angered by Lena Hidalgo's mandate to wear masks. Because now in the city of Houston, if you're seen outside without a mask, you could get fined up to $1,000. So people on a um, lot of different channels I'm seeing in Houston are losing their minds about that mandate and the fine. And I'm also thinking about um, individuals with mental health concerns or disabilities who may not understand why they need to wear the mask and then how that plays out. So that was a really long stream of consciousness answer. No, that was great. <laughs> but this is what I've been thinking about all week. So Leon, if what what is the opposition to a fear appeal? I mean, I, I understand there's a reason-based appeal and that that's not working so well with a lot of folks, in part because there's been a lot of disinformation out there. So yeah. you can't use your reason unless you have some facts to exercise it on. Um, but the appeals from, you know, protect your fellow man, you know, this sort of altruistic appeal doesn't seem to have quite the same legs yeah. <laughs> as yeah. the fear appeal. Yeah. So it's so like on the one hand, we, we think about so many campaigns that have used fear of feel fear appeals effectively. Right. Like um, mm -hmm. a lot of the anti-smoking campaigns that show individuals with mm -hmm. uh, tracheotomies or they show mm -hmm. black lungs. But I I think one of the, the concerns with fear appeals in a covid context is that like what kind of images do you use in that moment to stimulate that fear appeal? Is it an individual in a body bag? Is it an individual in a hospital room or a respirator? Um, and really at the end of the day, I think what's competing here with the feel appeal is really the individualistic call to arms, if you will, right? For individuals yeah. to not be limited or regulated and certainly not fined. Yeah, I wonder, I'm, I was thinking about what appeals seem like they work the best on people. And sometimes it's like social media reinforcement, but it, it's so, for some groups, that's a thing, right? Like people, I mean, I'll admit it for myself. I was sewing masks and I posted that I was sewing masks because I wanted all the positive reinforcement from my friends. Yeah, because yeah. they're there. I mean, <laughs> I could mail them to them, but you know, there's a, there's always that element of like, oh, I want people to tell me I'm doing a good job. And, you know, I think in my social media circle, that's something I'm going to get lots of reinforcement for or showing yourself, you know, a, pic a selfie where you're out with your mask on and your gloves or whatever. Like, yeah. but in some social media circle, some people's social media circles saying, you know, my right, my body, my rights or something. <laughs> Weird co-optation of that rhetoric. Yeah. I, really, I was just going to really, really, um, just circle back to science communication. Um, I've been doing a lot of work with um, an engineering team out of the University of Nebraska on trying to increase public awareness of antibiotic resistance. And so we've done a lot of research in science communication more in Leah's field for that. And a lot of the studies we've been looking at suggest that 
scientific literacy is not the problem. So when we like scream like, but the data, but the data, but the data at people, actually most people in this day and age are surprisingly scientifically literate. And instead, what we found is that people are social and they're going to pick the things that reinforce group bonds that they already have. So if the people around them, if they get that positive reinforcement from saying, you're not going to infringe on my rights, that's what they're going to do. The evidence isn't the question. Right. Yeah. And the confirmation bias of cherry picking evidence as well, especially when there's conflicting facts, you know, being spread. Yeah. There's, there's so many um, risk crisis persuasion theories that have that strong social norms component, right? Because Kari, I think you nailed it. Individuals are brilliant. They're smart. They know how to read this information from all of these different outlets. But I think what's the most significant factor as we're starting to see play out is maybe not necessarily the information literacy, but more so the norm, like the social normative function, right? Like I'm wearing masks because I know they're important, but more so because my mom mailed me like 10 of them, right? And Girl, legit the other day I was driving out to get something and I called my mom just because I missed her. I don't know if she's watching, but she was like, where's your mask? And I wasn't going to do it that day. And I know better, but like, I just didn't want to wear the mask. And then she like told me to do it. So I did it. Exactly. <laughs> Thanks mom. <laughs> I wonder what would, you know, if it's, if it's around, if it's about identity, you know, given where we are in the trajectory of the kind of, you know, yelling from one side to the other, is there a way to design, for example, a campaign which would tie identity, identity on the right wing to say wearing masks? Yeah. Like your, gonna... mask, your second amendment mask, your, you know, hopefully right. not a white peak tat mask, but you know, I mean, <laughs> something. Yeah. <laughs> That's what I was thinking about, that there's this weird complication in this and I, it's, I mean, it just feels like this whole whole sort of um, like galaxy of elements came together to create this situation where caring about public health is is tied to the left wing. Mm -hmm. But I don't think that that's always been true. I mean, there's lots of we can think of lots of historical epidemics where it goes the other way, right? Like there's not it's not necessarily true, but in this case, now so many of these terms, even like social distancing, for example, I think has started to have a partisan ring to it. Yeah. And I think there's probably people who are hesitant to do things because they don't wanna get kickback mm -hmm. from people on their social media networks or in their families or you know, people mm -hmm. who are in communities or social groups that are primarily right-wing um, identified, they might actually hesitate even if they were persuaded, you know, even if they actually wanted to wear a mask, maybe they're not wearing a mask because of that. You know, I mean, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's I'm working on that paper I told you all about for American literature. And I did a big study, well, a big study. I did a lot of reading last week about American versus British uh, receptions of germ theory and there's mm -hmm. sort of a narrative that america was later to the game 
And that's apparently not true, but I read some really compelling arguments that America was different in the uses to which it put germ theory insofar as exactly as you say, Jen, even if the British were doing this with a paternalistic attitude towards the poor, they were still dealing with disease as social infrastructure problems that the government needed to take a role in. Whereas according to this author, Charles Allen McCoy, he's um, at SUNY Plattsburgh, I think. Um, he said that America was always more of a militaristic model of medical discourse. And I don't know what Lorenzo would say about that. I think he yeah. would say that the British did that too, but that they always <laughs> tended more towards individualistic practices, such mm -hmm. as neoliberal mandates, like it's on you to be clean and yeah. quarantine, such as we saw with Typhoid Mary, Mary Mallon. Mm -hmm. I wonder what you guys think about that. I found it very interesting and I have been chewing on the idea. Yeah. Of course, none of us, well, Pamela and Jen and I were all British scholars, but we are Americans, so <laughs> we're allowed to talk about both, right? That's true. Don't tell any no. Americans I said that. <laughs> yeah. Y'all yeah, know I think about culture and identity way too much, right? Way too much. And I, like, Kari, I think your point and Jen's point go together so well when we think about it along... Um, political lines, but also cultural lines, right? Like I'm, even now, after so many years of being in health communication, I still keep trying to rectify how all of these pieces put together at a larger public health perspective, right? It's like the, the idea of social distancing shouldn't be seen as a partisan issue, but it's kind of evolved as such, right? Um, it shouldn't necessarily perhaps be seen as a racial ethnic health disparities issue, but it's absolutely evolving as such, particularly in a lot of the memes we've been seeing on Facebook about what sort of body can wear a mask without fear of, um, mm -hmm. you know, all sorts of problematic things. And then also what sorts of bodies are the bodies that are doing the labor. Um, and um, there, there was also a different set of memes I saw playing out this week in terms of protesting. So like protesting as a, as an American right, a citizen right, also a sometimes militarized action or right, um, and the types of bodies that can do these protests without, again, mm -hmm. the fear of um, some sort of problematic retribution. So I don't know if that necessarily answered your question, but that's what I thought of with both of y'all's thoughts together. Well, the other thing I've been thinking about, actually, Pamela, you've written a book about this. Um, <laughs> what hasn't Pamela written a book about? <laughs> oh. <laughs> well, I was thinking about the cholera in um, the religion stuff with cholera. Mm -hmm. um, when I was seeing, because I saw this interview, I'm sure many of you saw this interview of this woman saying, you know, coming out of church and she's being interviewed by a reporter, and he's like, "Nobody ever uses." Yeah. How would you risk this? And she's like, I'm I'm covered in the blood of Christ. I'm covered in the blood of Christ. Like, as if that means you can't get sick. Um, and which my quite religious parents disputed the theological basis of. Um, but I just can't not think of bloodborne pathogens when somebody says that. <laughs> yeah, like, think of all the things you'd be opening yourself up to. <laughs> yourself in anyone's blood. Um, <laughs> But I was just thinking about this. Um, I mean, because if I recall correctly, there was a, some people tried to read cholera as a religious 
condemnation, right? And like you weren't supposed to do any public health because it was it was sort of a a judgment from God. And right. I but I don't remember exactly because I'm just trying to recall reading the book that you wrote. So I'll have to do Pamela. Right. Well, I mean it you know, not not everyone thought this of course, but there was a small sort of wing of of folks who said this is clearly a judgment from God. And immediately attached that to all the uh, to all the political things that they didn't like. Like mm -hmm. you thought about recognizing Catholics in Parliament, judgment of God. <laughs> you know, uh, people. You know, people were outside enjoying themselves on the Sabbath, judgment of God. Right. Mm -hmm. um, so, and of course, at the same time in France, they were saying, "Oh, it's because we've moved away from the Catholic Church." So. You know, it's a perfect example of people saying it that the epidemic operates in some completely different way in our country than it does everywhere else, right? Like in those places, it may not be, but in our in our country, it's moving away from Protestantism. So God is apparently very selective about how these things these things work out. Um, but you know, what's what's kind of most interesting about that is that you you know you're in a you're in a time at the beginning of the century where you know, the the church really speaks for the nation. You have a state church, an established church, and doctors are really private individuals and health is a private matter. Yeah. And through the medium of this, of, of the cholera epidemics, I argue, um, you know, basically over the period from 1832 through the 1850s, doctors move into being um, public figures with a public health mandate who can speak for this, what is now conceived of as a political and national concern, mm -hmm. which was not earlier. I was thinking about, you know, because I realized as we were talking about this the other day, I think you may have seen this on, on Facebook, um, Carrie, or on Twitter, it was like, I've never really studied virology because viruses are really not a thing in the 19th century and the period that I'm most focused on. And so, you know, I was kind of asking some really basic questions and then I thought, okay, so, you know, germ theory, the great age of germ theory, sort of the late 19th century, and then virology, you know, really, it, it starts to be sort of discovered in the late 19th century, but it really comes into its own with the electron microscope. But we really turn toward a, like, there are germs, and we should kill them, kill the germ, the germ is bad, kill the germ. Mm -hmm. And that leads me back, Jen, to what you were saying about, you know, um, having this kind of us and them attitude toward pathogens, when of course pathogens have been with us for a really long time and reading some of the virology, I mean that there are viruses that cause illnesses, but also have protective effects. Mm -hmm. And I thought about the way that, um, you know, under, under uh, earlier models of medicine, when someone was sick, you said, oh, there's an imbalance, we're gonna strengthen the body. Mm -hmm. um, and then we discovered germs and we're like, oh no, the problem is this germ and we're gonna kill the thing. And if we kill it inside your body and we have to kill you to do it, hey, then it's <laughs> the breaks. But actually we're finally now hmm. turning again toward an idea of that we are you know, a system and it's about strengthening the system and not about like isolating and killing the one thing in the ecology that isn't right. And immunotherapy really kind of returns us in some ways to an, earl an earlier way of thinking about the body. Oh, so that's so smart. <laughs> I love that. 
you know, all the lost opportunities. All the lost opportunities for thinking about immunotherapy, you know, back when they discovered that, um, oh, hey, if people get erysipelas, that will sometimes cure their their lymphoma, right? Mm -hmm. And then, oh, x-ray is shiny object. And so we never followed that out. And we lost 80 years (laughs) or whatever it was, 70. I just heard someone, I'm going to see if I can find the name of the person, um, talking about this on the podcast. Um, this week in virology, mm. uh, which is a great podcast. If you Ooh. haven't listened to it, um, oh, just released a new episode, so I'll be listening to that later. <laughs> um, but uh, can I click on this? Okay, Kostya Chumakov is the person who was um, talking about it, but he was talking about the differences. Um, between different types of polio vaccines mm-hmm. and basically putting forth a theory that a particular type of polio vaccine, and I'm not going to get the details mm-hmm. of this right because I don't know that much about virology, but um, it was something to do with the difference between like attenuated virus. It's called OPV, but I don't know. I guess it's just oral polio vaccine, um, but it uses a different method. And I think it's, it's like it's the difference between attenuated virus or like, you know, you know, I don't know the difference between different types of vaccines, but it was stimulating some kind of immune response. His hypothesis is that it's stimulating a kind of immune response that actually um, is protective against other types, other diseases besides polio. Um, And that they were seeing lower rates of other, other viruses among people who were getting that type of polio vaccine, which is mostly used, was mostly used in the USSR. And is still in Russia, I believe, compared to people who were getting a newer type of vaccine, which had been seen as safer because it was like farther away from giving someone the actual virus, mm-hmm. but um, maybe didn't have this kind of bonus effect. You know, so it was making me think about just like the way that the body operates as this really complex ecology, and when we do one thing, we don't know. We don't always know all the things like we can't precision locate uh, a germ and kill it most of the time, I guess. Um, We're always kind of adding and subtracting. And there is still this level of balance that even though we like to make fun of, you know, humorology, (laughs) like the humors and Mm -hmm. um, that that way of thinking about the body, it actually isn't at least metaphorically, it still works for us. Well, and one thing I often tell my students in medical humanities courses is if we just assume that every way that we're viewing things, every epistemology is obviously right and everything that's come before us or exists in different geographical spaces is backwards, then we're prone to the errors that we can now see in the past. So only by saying that this could be something at play can we pr- protect better against those oversights? But then that gets back to the whole problem of communication um, of, you know, how do you, it's, it's a lot harder to convince someone or to get grant money <laughs> or whatnot when you say this could be a factor. Right. Um, versus this is the answer, right? Yeah. And you don't know what you don't know yet, right? And I think that's yeah, that's 
so much of the uncertainty at the public level now because we know like, hey, social distancing is working and all of these other preventative and reactive measures are working, but then you see discourses playing out about vaccines and funding and where the vaccines are coming from. And I remember seeing articles not too long ago about how um, some of the tests and the vaccines that came out of the CDC were infected. And then that that one article, which is such a smaller subset of this massively large discourse about coronavirus, then just spirals out of control with viral. <laughs> <laughs> Here and the hypocrisy and everything else. And I think what we're seeing here, in addition to all of these other factors, is really um, uncertainty management working or not working and then spiraling, right? Right. One of the most terrifying things I think about the virus is that, you know, even though so many people have died from it, we really don't have a handle on what the actual um, effects are, right? We're now seeing people talking about blood clots and we're seeing, you know, amputations and kidney damage. And, you know, it's it's hard to, to have it. And then there are all these asymptomatic people and what's up with that? <laughs> I don't need a mask. I don't have the symptoms. It doesn't matter. I can do what I want. Right. But also, I mean, they're asymptomatic, but they're infected. So does that mean that they will have damage later on down the line, even though, or does it mean they're not, you know? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we don't know. Yeah. It, it, I mean, it's so hard to, it makes it very easy for people who are trying to downplay or discredit science, science in general. Um, when yeah when there is this degree of uncertainty and there aren't certain answers and people do have to keep revising as we go yeah. right when one week it's like we need we need you know ventilators and the next week it's like oh no we need dialysis yeah 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 and just i think again this i just keep returning to this idea that and i include myself in this statement that especially in america we're not we're shockingly not used to the idea that we can't just the things we want or need won't just be available mm -hmm. um like i mean i kind of i think i fell into this a bit earlier on where there are some people that are like cool like well we'll get a vaccine and even i had to like be like <laughs> oh wait like you can't just have yeah, a vaccine work. like yeah. humans have to make it and test, test it, it. <laughs> Yeah. And I've even heard that with ventilators, you know, some of the conversations have been like, okay, we'll get ventilators. And as you say, that's not really the discourse anymore. But then I heard one person eventually say like, can't just have a ventilator. You've got to have like oxygen taps and you've got to have a type of bed that it like, these things yeah. don't mm -hmm. just pop out of nowhere. And it just, I feel like I keep getting called out by circumstances that show me that I fall victim to that mm -hmm. thinking as well. Right, right. I mean, especially with things that we think of as being really quotidian and easy and insignificant, like swabs. Who yeah. knew that swabs would be the weak link for yeah, so I mean, many tests? But swabs have to be made somewhere. And it turns out most of them are made in Italy. Yeah, <laughs> I know. And you think, well, we've got cotton, we've got sticks. How hard can it be? Yeah. Yeah. Well, speaking of big ecologies, big ecological systems that are more complex than we always are capable of grasping, 
the the global economy is one of them. We don't know all the factors. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And the global labor chains that make things possible. Yes. Um, and you know the the political moment is so much militating against making those easy already. <laughs> uh, you know, I'm seeing in Britain now that they're bringing in people from Eastern Europe to harvest their crops right after Brexit and no more freedom of movement <laughs> and forced borders. And of course, we're in the same situation and that most of the people who, who, you know, who provide us with food are, you know, are guest workers. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we're really seeing disruptions along the food chain. You know, um, restaurants are closed, so people are plowing the crops back into the field. Right. That's happening all over Florida. Um, you know, we're going to see meat shortages because all of these meat plants are now having to close because, you know, finally, after enough people die, it gets embarrassing. Um, I and had not heard about meat plants closing. closing. Oh, really? Oh, ah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Out in Iowa, I think in Nebraska, they've had to close some because, you know, people work very close together in these places and it's very fast paced work. And so once the sickness gets in, it just kind of tears through oh. um, these meat packing plants. But, um, you know, the flip side of this is that, we, you know, a, a piece just came out in the New York Times about how there's going to be world hunger. There's going to be starvation all over the world in the wake of this. There was already, you know, a lot of places already had food insecurity, but this is creating a huge crisis. This and the various wars that people are pursuing, and um, you were plowing, you know, we're plowing squash back into the field because we don't have restaurants to buy it. I mean, the whole thing is a little, it's a little crazy. Yeah, it's always been our problem: is food distribution, not food production. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, Malthus did not see this aspect of it yeah. coming. <laughs> yeah, we've been doing this. This sort of been a um, little project in my house is that we have somebody created an app for our county um, where restaurants and, and stores that have leftover food can post it on the app and then you can volunteer to go pick it up and bring it. To that's people. good. So, um, in a sort of local level redistribution, but yeah. at the at the global level, yeah, more complicated. And yeah. if restaurants stop being able to get their supplies, then that's not going to happen anymore. Yeah, yeah. Nobody's going to be able to take these restaurant supplies to Syria, for example. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. but but yeah, we could certainly be doing more. I think Publix just said that they are going to try to um, purchase some of these farmers' products and give them to food banks. So that's huge. Yeah, that's great. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's scary to think about the long-term effects of this. And I almost feel like I can't quite think about it yet. Mm -hmm. Me either. I'm still in acute crisis mode. And then eventually, I guess we can, I'm sure some people are thinking about it, but um, <laughs> I haven't been yet. Yeah, and I, yeah, again, it's kind of weird because we're we're in acute crisis mode, but as it as it stretches on, yeah. and especially for those of us who are in communities that have not been hit quite as hard yet, so we're not, again, we're not visibly seeing it. It's not you know in our families. Yeah, um, it's sort of hard to wrap one's head around 
that kind of crisis. And often, you know, you see calls to altruism being very effective right during and immediately after a crisis. Yeah. But once they stretch on, that becomes less effective. Leanne, you must see that. You must, you know, have a lot of material on that. Yeah, and I, I think it's interesting too to think about related factors um, like patience and degrees of separation, right? Like I think immediately before and immediately after, you don't necessarily have to worry so much about publics being impatient because you're in the throes of that moment. But um, as we're in this for a few months, several months, I mean, longer than that, we just don't know yet. I think that's when the patience and the autonomy and the individual rights and, I mean, really, mm -hmm individuals just lack of willingness to deal with it anymore. And I can't necessarily say that I blame them, right? This is a really rough time. Um, so I understand the logic there. But then when it comes down to the campaign perspective, I think it goes from reshifting to try and find those more effective messages that I think are going to get at those populations who are pretty much at their wits end, like mm -hmm. those who are just ready for it to be over with. Mm -hmm. Because it's like, okay, we're wearing masks. Masks are kind of a no novel idea, right? So individuals are wearing masks for a week, two weeks, three weeks. But then it becomes a mandate. And then you end up having to wear a mask for, let's say, somewhere along the line of six months. Like, will the, the science behind it still be enough to get people to follow through with the mandate? Will the altruism at that point still be enough to get individuals to follow through with it? Or do we have to shift gears communicatively altogether at that point? Yeah. I mean, masks have had, you know, have been sort of successfully adopted as winter flu season wear every year yeah. in lots of Asian countries. And I can mm -hmm. see, you know, as as cute masks come out, then, you know, with identity sites on them, I could see people getting sort of more used to that because that's an inconvenience. It's not a kind of life altering inconvenience. Yeah. But if we had to quarantine again, yeah, that would be harder. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I don't know you that know, we could achieve it to think about the global unprecedentedness of the entire world basically being on lockdown. I just, that's been my fear when I've seen more and more people out locally. I feel like I'm surprised that we had one shot to get everyone to stay home. And I don't know that we'll get another shot. Mm -hmm. when yeah. you have, have any of you heard anything about um, fall courses? at your universities? Do you think they're still thinking about it? And we're going to find out in, in uh, July. Yeah. How about you? We haven't heard yet. I Yeah, they're still considering the options. Yeah. But we're online through the entire summer and the summer, the summer schedule was pushed back a week. I mean, you can see they're sort of desperately playing for time, yeah. but We've, they've only called it for the first two summer sessions. They're still waiting on the last summer session and the fall. But yeah. I've heard from a lot of students feeling alarm at the idea of not going back in the fall in real life. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. But it does seem likely that we won't, you know, it's, I don't know. It's hard to Right. Yeah, it's it's shocking to have the reality set in that this likely will not be fixed by then, right? Yeah, and it's hard to think. Yeah, I mean, it would certainly be a justifiable decision by the university to to oh yeah go all all remote for fall, but 
I mean, if this thing is still circulating, you know, at the same levels, I don't necessarily want to be around 70, 18 to 22 year olds that have come, that have just arrived from all over the place. <laughs> and I mean, maybe by then we'll have more serology and maybe we'll have some, some ability to see if, to know if we had it already or something, you know, I mean, I just, yeah, I don't know. And, but we don't even know if that's effective. So, you know, we don't even know if you get sustained immunity from having it. So, right. I don't know. I guess I'm just going to have to figure out how to use Blackboard Ultra. <laughs> <Ugh>. <laughs> Probably the safest bet for now. <laughs> yeah. Well, we'll see. I mean, again, we're, you know, with all the inconvenience, we're in the lucky situation that there are things that we can still mm -hmm. do. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Ah, Amy says, I am, Amy Whitaker says, I'm hopeful for antibody tests. Me too. <laughs> that is, um, Amy is a biochemist. So even though she doesn't study oh, this, okay. I feel like maybe she knows better than us. I yeah. want to believe that. I mean, that. that case, her hopefulness really gives me hope. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm hopeful too. At least maybe then, you know, in pe certain people could have some level of safety or some level of comfort going back into work situations. Yeah. 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 All right. Well, we're pushing 40 minutes and I've got another meeting coming up. So... Any yeah. final thoughts or are we, were those them? Those were them. It's great to see you all. Yeah. yeah. This is really, ever since Pamela, you said this you. is like the grounding point of your week, especially as we've gotten farther into quarantine, it's helped yeah. me because I have increasingly lost my sense of time and space. Yeah. So to yeah. have this in my Thursday, it's been really nice. Yeah. Yeah. Same here. <laughs> all right. Thanks again, yeah. guys. Thanks for starting it. All right. Bye. 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 Take care, everyone. Bye. Thanks again for joining us for this episode of the Human Capital Innovations Podcast. I hope you stay healthy and safe and that you have a great week. Check out our new weekly LinkedIn newsletter, Alchemizing Human Capital, exploring industry trends via original research and interviews with executives and thought leaders from across the globe. We look forward to having you join us.